Well, again, good morning. Well, we're going to look again at Hebrews this morning. And so as we've been talking through Hebrews and walking through Hebrews, we've been talking about how Jesus is greater than. And that's the whole part of the whole conversation. And they're walking through a whole series of issues, a series of things that are taking place. And as the writer to the people of Hebrews, again, he's saying to the Hebrews because he's talking overwhelmingly to a Christian but Jewish community. And things are going on in this community that is prompting them to back up from their relationship with Jesus. And they're wrestling with this whole thing because their identity is Jewish. Now, does anyone ever have the sense of an identity? Yes? No? We do. Okay? Sometimes we, we start in different areas and we start in different... I remember as a kid... I'm a boy, and y'all would run around, and I would play and do boy things, and all that kind of stuff. That kind of started to shape my identity. I started to think about my my family, and I'm a brown, you know, and so that was all that kind of stuff. Well, as you're growing up Jewish, and as you're doing all these things in your community, being Jewish and identifying yourself as Jewish was a big deal. And so this is all part of their identity. Now, as you say, I'm Jewish, they're also saying, well, if I'm Jewish, then I keep the law, I think of Abraham, I go to temple, and there's a whole bunch of things that are connected with being Jewish. But as these individuals came to know Jesus as their Savior, they started to leave behind the Jewish traditions and the Jewish patterns and they started to embrace Jesus because they started to understand that Jesus was the completion of the Jewish tradition. But somewhere in this process, someone has come to them and someone has started to teach them, preach to them, talk to them and is starting to say to them, you can't step away from your Jewish traditions. You need to go back and you need to embrace your Jewish traditions. You need to go back and embrace the law. You need to go back and embrace the Torah because if you don't, you're, you're not going to experience God. And, and they, they pushed on these things. And so as they listened to this, they started to back away from Jesus and they started to back into their Jewish tradition. And so as the writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish, overwhelmingly Jewish community that had made decisions for Jesus, he's coming back and saying to them, listen, you need to understand, Jesus is better, Jesus is greater than all of these things that we were raised to think were awesome. All of this stuff. Jesus is greater. And as we talked a little bit last week, we think of the priesthood and Aaron's priesthood. Jesus is greater than Aaron's priesthood because he's a priest not of the order of Aaron, but he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus Jesus was God who became like us so that we could have relationship with God. And he's walking through all of these things. And today he leans into the area of covenant and talks about covenant. And again, if you're Jewish, covenant is huge. It's huge. Because your relationship with God is based upon a series of covenants. So we're going to look at that, have some fun with that. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll start to walk through what's going on. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for watching over us. I thank you. Father, it's really, really cool to, to see people who can help serve and, and be engaged and involved and, and lead and, and do different parts and do different things. And your, your provision, your goodness, your faithfulness is awesome. And Father, I thank you for today that you've given us the privilege today to come and to worship, the privilege to come and listen to your word and to, and to see what you're doing and the awesome things that you've done over history and the ways that you revealed yourself and shown yourself. Father, I just ask that you'd be honored in our time and that you'd build into us the character and the substance of Jesus. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. So let's start this morning by by looking 
in chapter 7 and kind of get some of that running start. And I think we're lo- looking at verse 26. And we're going to start in cha- Isaiah, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. And we've looked at this a little bit last week. We're going to kind of get that running start into the superior covenant. He says, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do for their, for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints a high, as high priests men who are weak, but the promise, but the promise of the oath, i.e. the fact that God said he, Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek based upon that oath, which came after the law, and it appoints Jesus, who became a priest perfected, who, and who has been perfected forever. And then as we came to this point last week, we said, now, he goes, the main point of what is being said, and this main point of this conversation about Jesus being a priest forever of the courting of Melchizedek, says, now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, what's going on, he's not continuing to make sacrifices. His work is done. Now, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Now, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since since there are those offering the gifts prescribed from the law. And he wouldn't be a priest because he was a tribe of David, not a Levite. Not of Levi. But he's not being a priest here on earth. He's being a priest in heaven, in the heavenly priesthood, in the, in the heavenly temple. And as we talked before about this, the earthly temple was made as a model of the heavenly temple. But Jesus isn't going to the earthly temple. He is going to the heavenly temple. And we're going to see a little bit more, not of this creation. Now wrap that around your head. Okay, so this is something that preceded, predated, was not part of the creation that God made when he said in the beginning. Wasn't part of that. Now, keeps on going. So these serve, talking about the priests of the law, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things and talking about the stuff that's going on, was going on at this point in time. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator. And again, as we talk about this whole conversation, one thing is building on to the next. So Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is a man. Jesus is greater than the angels. And as Jesus is greater than angels, you have this. And then because Jesus, because of that. And now Jesus is a priest according to the other order of Melchizedek. And now because Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, we come to this part. And now we see that he is the, the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Now again, we talked about this last week, when, when, when the writer of the Hebrews was saying, all this law stuff is, is worthless, Poof, blows your mind. Now you come back and say, and now Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Again, for these guys, for the Hebrew community, Poof, blowing their mind. Because their whole identity, their whole sense of their being Jewish, their whole sense of this is who I am and these are the things that define me is based upon all of this understanding and all this framework of covenant, the law, which is all covenant. And he comes back and he says there is a better covenant. And then he quotes Jeremiah. Now, this is where it starts to get to be fun. 
He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, i.e. not like the covenant that I made and that you guys identify as the covenant of Abraham or or Moses, the Mosaic covenant. Ah, it's going to be different than that, better than that. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. And if you go back to where he's quoting this and from where this is taking place in Jeremiah chapter 31, you're going to read up above how God is pouring out his wrath and he's pouring out judgment and he's acknowledging that's going on. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the last to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their wrongdoings and I will never again remember their sins. He says this, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. Again, poof, what do you mean obsolete? What do you mean it's no longer relevant? What do you mean it's no longer in place? How can you say that? Our whole identity, our whole sense of self is wrapped up in all of this stuff that we say defines us as Jewish. And all of that stuff gets connected to the law, gets connected to the Torah, gets connected to the words of Moses. It's all connected to these covenants. And how can you say this is obsolete? We're about ready to have a fight. I'm about to punch you in the face because I am not liking what you're saying. This is ticking me off. How can you say all of this is obsolete? He's totally resolving issues and addressing issues that are pulling the carpet out from underneath their feet. This is fighting language. It's obsolete. He has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Guys, you're holding on to something that's failing, that's fading, it's crumbling in your hands. Turn away and look back, it's dust. It's obsolete, it's crumbling, it's going away. And he makes this quote, and the writer of Hebrews quotes this from Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 31. So just for fun, let's go and look at this in Jeremiah 31. And then we're going to talk about what's happening around Jeremiah 31. Look, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, see if this sounds familiar. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This, is, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on a day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. It sounded awful like what, what the writer of Hebrews is quoting. He says, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's decla- their master, the Lord's declaration, and said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Again, this is the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching with them, them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of men. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. He's quoting exactly what Isaiah was declaring to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31. Now, for fun, what is going on in Jeremiah 31? The nation of Israel is surrounded by Babylon. But this isn't the first time they've been surrounded by Babylon. 
This is now the second time they've been surrounded by Babylon. Now, you would think, in, in the context of the old world stuff, it's, you know, if you really want to live well, you, you live as the king. But this is what's been going on. So Israel and Egypt are kind of fighting each other. The king of, of Israel goes out and he opposes the king of Egypt as he's coming up to fight Babylon. The king of Egypt gets defeated. But in the interim time, while he passes past Israel, the king has died, another guy is put in place. So the king of Egypt goes up, fights Babylon, loses. Comes back, because in that process he had fought Israel, beat Israel, so now Israel is still subject to Egypt. So what does he do? He takes a new king, says, you're not the new king, you're coming to Egypt, you're now a prisoner in Egypt, and he puts another guy in authority. He puts his brother in authority. New king in Egypt, or new king of Israel, again. Then the king of Babylon shows up, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decides it's time to fight the, king, the nation of Israel. He defeats the nation of Israel, and he says to the puppet king for, Israel, for Egypt, you're not the king anymore, I'm going to have another king. I'm going to put my own puppet on the throne. He puts his own puppet on the throne. And he carts the old puppet, the Egypt puppet, off to Babylon. It's not really, at this period of time, a good thing to be the king of Israel. Because if you're the king of Israel, you're not sitting on the throne very long, and you're going to places you don't want to go. And you're probably having stuff done to you you don't like having done. Because the guy that replaces the first, the second puppet, the one that's going to be going to Babylon, he gets to watch his kids, his sons, all killed in front of him, and he gets his eyes gouged out, and then he gets to spend the rest of his life sitting in a prison cell. Not what you really want as king. But this king, the one who has all those really ugly things happen to him, he's the one on the throne. He is the Babylonian puppet. And here's part of the problem. All through this later history of the nation of Israel, the kings are not honoring God. They're being rebellious, they're being stubborn, they're being selfish, they're not honoring God, they're chasing other idols, they're not serving the Lord, and so God's judgment is going to falling on the nation. Because here's the reality of the covenant that God has made with the nation of Israel. There are parts of it that are eternal, but there are also parts of that covenant that are conditional. And so some of the conditional components of the covenant are this. If you honor me, if you follow me, I will bless you. But if you don't listen to me, if you don't follow me, if you disregard the laws I've given, I'm going to bring judgment. There's going to be consequences. And you're going to, you're going to have kings and kingdoms knock on your doors, fight you, defeat you, and I'm going to use those kings and kingdoms as tools of judgment and discipline, and you're going to be carted off to captivity. And so God is doing exactly what he told the nation of Israel he would do if they didn't listen, if they didn't follow, and if they didn't honor. So we have this covenant, this Mosaic covenant. There's parts of this covenant that are eternal and parts of this covenant that are conditional. So God is still, like he said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, and all that kind of stuff. The nation of Israel are his promised people. He's, he's established an eternal covenant. The nations of the world are still going to be blessed through them. But, because they have been disregarding and disobeying aspects of the law, based upon the covenant, the conditional nature of the covenant, God's judgment and his wrath and his discipline is landing on the nation. Now, what's going on now in Jerusalem is the nation of, the, the city of Jerusalem is once again surrounded by the king of Babylon. And it is not good in the city of Jerusalem. It is bad. Because this siege has been going on now for a while. But Jeremiah is still preaching. And the king is ticked off with Jeremiah. And now Jeremiah is being held as a prisoner at the, near the palace, near the guard's gate, and he's being held prisoner. And tradition would say he's being held in the well. They have dumped him in the well. So that's where he's being held prisoner. But he keeps on prophesying. And part of his prophecy that is going on is... The king of Babylon's going to win. We're all going to die. 
You're all going to be carted into captivity. Don't fight. Don't argue. Surrender. It'll be easier for you. It'll be better for you. And of course the king is ticked off. He said, would you be quiet? Would you stop telling everyone this is a lost cause? It's not a lost cause. I don't want it to be a lost cause. We can maybe win. Now they're surrounded by the king of Babylon. There's no way they're going to win. But he's fighting. He's resisting. But here's the other thing that he's also saying and he's also declaring. He says, God is not done with the nation of Israel. God is going to restore the nation of Israel. God is going to bring the nation of Israel back and God is going to bring his faithfulness and his goodness back to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is once again going to be established in the land. And so just before the king of Babylon builds the siege work, knocks down the walls, and this time when he takes over the city of Jerusalem, he doesn't just cart off a few. So when we read in the scriptures about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, the first time King Nebuchadnezzar showed up, he didn't destroy the city. He didn't tear everything down. What he did is he left the city standing. He put, installed a puppet king. He left everything there, but he took the cream of the crop for his kingdom. And so he took a lot of the people that would could serve him, that would do a good job and and who were educated and formed and he carted them all back to Babylon. So then when you read in the book of Daniel and you read in the beginning portions of the of the training process that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going through, they were being trained, they were being prepared to serve in the administration of the Babylonian kingdom. As were many other Jewish individuals that were carted into captivity when Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem. But now as he is there, he's ticked off because the puppet king is being rebellious. He said, I'm going to try to do this on my own. He's going to get destroyed. In the context of all that, Jeremiah now writes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, and he makes this declaration that God is going to establish a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be a covenant that is written on our hearts. And again, in that whole conversation, and in this covenant, you're not going to have to say to your neighbor, listen to the Lord. And why are you going to have to not say that to your neighbor? Because your neighbor, i.e. the person who's also with you in that covenant, is also going to be a person who has a relationship with God, because they don't have to be informed, because they also have entered into a relationship with God. They also have the new law written on their hearts. And no longer written on tablets of stone. Now, one other thing is also taking place, interestingly, in this process. We've talked about this before. While Jeremiah is in the well, or in the guard's court, as a prisoner at the palace, or at the, where the king is, his cousin shows up. Don't you, you love this, I mean... The, the, the place is, you know, everything's falling apart. And the cousin goes, hey, I got a piece of property to sell you. Interested in buying a piece of property? He's <laughs> like, yeah, we're surrounded by Babylon. The walls are about to fall down. They're about to come in, march in, and cart everyone away. Sir, I want to buy a place around the corner. You know, just, they're going to raise and they're going to destroy it. I'm going to have to fix again. And he listens to him, and he listens to his cousin, and God says, buy the land. Buy the property. So again, all of this is in the context. All of this is what's happening around Jeremiah 31. And so Jeremiah buys the property. Counts out 17 shekels of silver. I'm thinking to myself, that's a lot of money he's spending. And he buys the land. But here's... But here's some of the stuff that's interesting. His cousin couldn't sell the land to anybody. Because Jeremiah was the one in line. Again, we come back to the whole language and the whole idea of kinsman redeemer. There had to be a related person. And all of this comes back to the covenant. To the first covenant. Because God gave the land. And as God had given the land, you weren't supposed to just sell the land because the land was a gift to the individuals. And so the individuals kept that land and were supposed to preserve that land, pass it down to the descendants, pass it down to family. And God in this whole conversation with Jeremiah says, buy the land. And so we're we're preserving the whole kinsman redeemer mindset, the whole redeemer component. 
But then he also says, what I want you to do is I want you to sign this contract, have it all done, and I want you to put it into something that's going to stand over time. I want you to bury it on the property so that later on when someone comes by and starts digging stuff, they will dig this up, they'll find this, and they'll say, oh, this property belongs to Jeremiah. It's not our property, it's already owned. And, and he's saying this because I want to remind you and I want to build back into the fact this understanding that right now you are going to be carted off the nation of Israel, the people here, they're going to be carted off to Babylon. But I am not done with the nation of Israel. I'm not done with Jerusalem, with Judea. The nation of Israel and all these individuals who are fighting against me and fighting against the king of Babylon, I want them to understand that they are going to be restored, they're going to be redeemed, and I am not done with the nation of Israel. And so this whole conversation is going on and then this discussion in Jeremiah about a new covenant that's going to be established. Now again, so these individuals over here who are wrestling with this whole component of identity, they know this prophecy. They understand this prophecy. This is part of their identity, but they don't really think about it a whole lot because it talks about a new covenant and they're wrapped up and they're tied into the old covenant. And the writer of Hebrews comes back and he says, guys, you need to understand that that point in time when God said he was going to do something new and you thought everything was going to end and everything was going to be destroyed. And all of them understand this at this point because what took place after the nation of Israel was carted off into captivity. The nation of Babylon was defeated. The Medes and Persians came into authority. And the Medes and Persians did something that was amazing. They said to all the people groups that the Babylonians and the Assyrians had displaced, they came to all these individuals and they said, we want a good relationship with you. We want to restore you back to your heritage lands. See, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they carted people away because from their view point that would subdue them that would get rid of any rebellion they would displace them and they would not be fighting for their land anymore they would be compliant and complicit with the expectations now the Medes and Persians come in listen we want a good relationship with you we want you to honor our authority we want you to honor our leadership we're going to restore you to your native lands we're going to restore you to your native countries and so they start to restore the people to their various lands and the nation of Israel is restored to the promised land and all of the Jewish people and all the Jewish nation, they all get this and they all understand it. Because they are among those who have been restored, among those who have been returned. Again, all of this is part of their national identity. Just like for us as Americans, part of our national identity is George Washington and crossing the Delaware. You know, Abe Lincoln, I cannot tell a lie. I, I cut down the cherry tree. Okay, we have some of these things that are just kind of part of our identity. Or didn't he cut down the cherry tree? I don't remember at this point. All right, what are you saying, John? I don't remember, I can't hear you, that's all right. George is the cherry tree? Okay, well see, I don't have as much identity as some of you guys do. Okay, but we have these things. We have these things. ideas. That's what come. We have Monticello, and, and, we, and we have these other historic places where we go and we learn about our ancestors. We learn about people who have done things. Because these things are cool. They're part of our heritage. They're part of our history. They're part of our identity. And he's coming back and he's talking to them about their identity and saying, guys, the one you need to be identifying with is Jesus. Because Jesus is the continuation of the very identity that you say is important. Because Jesus is the one who is doing the very things that Jeremiah said God would do. Because it's through Jesus that the law is now no longer being applied to tablets of stone. It's now through Jesus that the law is being written on the heart. Jesus is the completion of those things that we say are the important components of our identity. So don't back up. Don't back away. 
but rather step in, lean in to Jesus because Jesus is the one who's fulfilling and Jesus is the Lord of a new covenant, something better than what we had. Not something that is conditional, not something that is old, not something that's falling apart in our fingers, not something that's passing away, but something that is new, that is vibrant, that lasts forever. Then he continues. We come back then to chapter 9 as this conversation continues. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and the earthly and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves, behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And again, these are all parts of the identity. These are all things that have taken place as a nation of Israel left Egypt, as God met with them, as God identified Aaron as the one who would serve as priest. So these are the things that are those things identifying them that are part of their heritage saying this is where our identity is captured the cherubim of glory were above the ark overshadowing the mercy seat it is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now now with these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, which is the Holy of Holies, and does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Do you hear that? That's a huge statement. Let me read that verse again. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. The pathway had not yet been revealed. It's now being revealed. Guys, that which was blocked, that which you didn't understand, those things are now being explained. Those things are now showing up. Those things are now appearing. This is why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Because now that barrier and that separation is gone. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect. You, can, you hear that? Let's go back and say that this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. Guys, you need to understand that what God gave us in the Mosaic Covenant, the, the covenant that we received as we left Egypt, it was temporary. It wasn't final. It was incomplete. But, but, Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, as we were talking about earlier, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Yeah, amen. Now again, he's coming back. He's obtained eternal redemption. In the old process, there could not. You cannot obtain that eternal redemption. You could not obtain that conscience 
clearing forgiveness for good could not be obtained, could not be gained. But now Jesus has entered the heavenly temple and he has obtained eternal redemption. That means it's perfect. It's exactly what we need and it doesn't ever expire. It's forever good. For the blood, excuse me, for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. See, guys, that which was incomplete was temporary for a period of time as a picture and as an image. But now Jesus has come and the final work is done. Guys, Jesus is a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek and he's a priest of a much better covenant. It's no longer a covenant that needs continued sacrifice because it is not sufficient. But now we have a covenant where Jesus has gone and made that sacrifice once and for all. And the sacrifice is complete, it's perfect, it's done, does not need to ever be repeated. Therefore, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Where where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is for a will again. He's talking about, he's shifted gears a little bit, but he's talking about wills. Okay, so when a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. Pause for a second. Does anyone have a will? Do you still have your stuff? Why? You've got a will and you've given all your stuff away in your will. Oh! You mean it doesn't work until you're dead? Isn't that good news? And we have people fight about this in court, don't they? Because sometimes someone changes their will. And people who, get, who were good and were getting something are now ticked off because they're out. So a will is wonderful. But it only kicks in when you're dead. And that's what he's saying. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. I'm not going to read this, and we're not going to start to apply this until we know the one who made it is dead and gone. For a will is valid only when people die. Since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant is inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has obtained for you. In this way he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And again, this is a verse we quote at various times. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because it establishes, it's establishing there is death, we're now established. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary, sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. 
He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to offer many things since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, the Hebrew community, the redeemed Hebrew community, is wrestling with their identity. Who are we? Who am I? Who do we identify ourselves with? Do we identify ourselves with the Christians and and do we step away from our Jewish tradition? Do we step away from our Jewish heritage? And do we cease being Jewish? And do we now start identifying ourselves as Christian? Who are we? And the writer to the Hebrews is coming back and saying again and again, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the priesthood. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than all of these things. Jesus is the one who made the ultimate and final sacrifice. We don't need to keep on going to the temple to find a covering for sin. We have we only come to Jesus because Jesus has offered that final single sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins so that our conscience can be cleared forever. Forever. Jesus is greater. Now we wrestle with this stuff in our community too, in our culture too, don't we? Because we wrestle with so many different things of identity and how do I associate myself? How do I identify myself? How do I label myself? How do I define myself? Who do I say that I am? I want to encourage you to wrestle back through what the scripture is talking about. Because the writer to the Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus is greater. He is greater than anything that you're talking about. He's greater than all of these things that are being identified. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is greater than anything you could identify yourself with in our culture. You can say, I identify myself as American, and that's, I identify myself as American, but can I tell you something? Identifying myself with Jesus is better than identifying myself as an American. I identify myself as a guy. It's wonderful. I think it's great to be a guy. I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I just think from my worldview, I'm content being a guy. But can I tell you something? It's much better than me. It's much better that I identify myself with Jesus than identifying myself as a guy. Now, I was joking the other day about how terrible it would be for a Philadelphia fan to identify himself because it would blow their mind to have to cheer for the Mets and the Yankees, and not, not, never the Yankees, but cheer for the Mets and the Giants and that kind of stuff. Now, I grew up in that New York area, so I kind of had always identified myself as a Met fan and a Giant fan, not a Yankee fan. As a Met fan and a Giant fan. But you want to know something? It's way better that I identify myself with Jesus than I identify myself as a Met fan or a Giant fan. Now, I guess especially when you go to Philadelphia, you know. There's nothing better that I can identify myself with than identifying myself with Jesus. In our culture, we wrestle with this whole debate of identity. The greatest identity to identify ourselves with is to identify ourselves with Jesus. Now, this is not a little challenge. Because those the writer is writing to are wrestling with this whole question of identity. Who am I? Who do I identify myself as? What is my affiliation? 
But as that continued over time, that was a major deal. Because as Rome started to persecute Christians, they started to ask, are you a Christian? And if someone identified themselves as a Christian, they would be persecuted. He's writing to people who are understanding components of this and parts of that. Today, there are people throughout our world who, because they identify themselves with Jesus, they are persecuted because they identify themselves as a follower of Jesus. Why? Because in our culture, what's going on is they want these individuals to say, I identify as a Muslim, or I identify as a, as a communist, or I identify as this, or I identify as that. And because they choose not to accept the designation that someone else is trying to put on them, but rather they come back and they say, I am a Christian, and that's the first place of how I define myself, and that's the first place of my identity, because it's the first place of their identity... They are persecuted and they face hardship. They have limitations and restrictions in their lives because they identify themselves with Jesus. This whole debate and this whole question, this whole conversation is really huge in our culture and it's striking to me that even as the writer of Hebrews is writing, he's coming back and he's dealing with core issues about how we see and how we understand ourselves. And he's writing to these individuals who have drawn their identity from their Jewish tradition and heritage. And because they're being pushed by people who are saying that's more important than anything, they've backed up a little bit from Jesus and they've started to create distance from Jesus because people are whispering in their ear, your Jewish tradition is more important than anything. And they've started to back away from Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is coming back and saying, listen, We understand the argument. We understand the debate. But you need to understand it's really clear. Jesus is greater than all of that. There is nothing that Jesus isn't greater than. And you draw your identity from that tradition. You draw your identity from that heritage. You draw your identity from those covenants. But Jesus is greater than all of that. And he is saying to them, identify yourself with Jesus. Lean in to a relationship with Jesus and let everything else become secondary. That's a major part of the challenge of what's taking place. But today we've hit a couple of verses that I think are key that flow through the Christian community at different times. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die so that that final sacrifice could be made so that you and I could have the opportunity for forgiveness. Because all that came before was temporary. It was only a covering. It was like a coat of paint. Do you ever have someone who has a blemish on the wall and they just paint over it? Well, here's the reality. You paint over it and it looks really good and you say the blemish is gone. No, the blemish is still there. It's just covered. What Jesus does is he comes to that blemish on the wall and he removes it. No paint required. The blemish is removed. Jesus didn't put a patch. He didn't put a covering. He didn't put a band-aid. He resolved and he addressed the issue of sin so that it would no longer be something that would block our relationship from God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die. He had to go to the cross so that we could be forgiven. And I would encourage you to grab a hold of Jesus and hold on to Jesus because it's only through Jesus that we find forgiveness. It is the only way that we have the opportunity to have a good, right, eternal relationship with God. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then that last little bit, he said he's coming again. But no longer, he's not coming to bring judgment, but rather he's coming to to bring his saints to himself and to restore relationship. Jesus is coming again. Are you living ready for that? 
He is coming again. Amen. I don't know when. My whole life, people are saying, Jesus is coming again. And you're looking out the window expecting it any moment. Okay? My whole life. You kind of, you kind of do this. I'm, I'm getting older now, so I can't jump as well. You do this rapture practice. I'm barely leaving the ground. He's coming again. You know, if I die before Jesus comes back, all the practice is all, all for naught. But I guess I'll get to have, get the practice maybe in heaven, because he's still going to come. Jesus is coming again. And we're being reminded of that promise. Now, here's part of what's going nuts. The, the craziness in the Jewish community. God gave the promise that he was going to create a new covenant. But they forgot about it. Because it didn't happen right away, they dismissed it. Oh, it's going to come somewhere out there. But something somewhere out there finally arrives. And if we're not paying attention when it finally arrives, we're not going to be ready for it. Live ready for Jesus to come back. Because he is coming. I don't know when. He didn't call me this morning and said, Hey, Andrew, just want to let you know this afternoon, 3 o'clock. Just be ready. He, didn't, he, did, he, he just didn't call and tell me. So I can't tell you. But he's coming again. Live being ready. Let's go to prayer. Father, as we get ready to head into the week and Father, as we will receive an offering and as we'll close in a final song, Lord, I thank you for the day you've given us and I thank you for the privilege you've given us to, to worship and to fellowship with you and to spend time around your word. But Father, I'd also ask that you would be at work in us. That Father, you'd be prodding our hearts and touching our spirits and, and grabbing our attention so that we are listening and paying attention. Father, there may be some of us in here today that you're, you're tapping at our heart and you're telling us, listen, I want you to embrace me. I want you to accept me as your Savior. I want you to invite me into your life because I have forgiveness to offer you if you just let me give it to you. And Father, there are some of us here today that are saying, Jesus, I'm not really yet ready to really fully identify myself with you yet because there's other things that I think are also really important. And sometimes I think, Jesus, these things are more important than, than walking with you or knowing you. And Lord, I would ask that you would be at work in us and those things that we wrestle with that, Father, you would help us to start to recognize that there is nothing better, nothing more important than for us to identify with than with you. And to give you that place of preeminence and that place of priority in our lives. Lord, I would ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.